0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, treat
1: mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over.
2: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Sitting across the table is Arch foodie Thea Lenaduzzi. Thea- am I Arch? Am I Arch? I
3: think You're I'm arch. deadly serious.
2: Yeah, there's an Arch to, to you. <laughs> uh, I was going to mention I had the Nigel Marmite pasta again, hmm. but then we talked about breakfasts early on today. Yeah. And you have nuts and berries in a little container. Oh, because they're portable. Yeah, so that's your breakfast, is it?
3: It's not in a container. It's, it's in a napkin or whatever I can find it's as I race out of the house at the crack of dawn. It's not
2: the crack of dawn. It's like seven crack o'clock. Of is it dawn. seven o'clock in the morning? Yeah. Yeah.
3: It's very early.
2: All right. So you sit there it's with your napkin. So you sit there with your napkin and have nuts and berries. Yeah,
3: quietly, quietly munching my nuts and berries, gazing out the window. Yeah.
2: Sounds lovely. Sounds almost almost ideal. Um, Subscribe to the TLS at the moment if you want to. You can get 12 issues for just 6 quid, which is a real bargain. You can sign up while that lasts. This week, we have a bumper and pretty wide-ranging show. Carl Miller is here to tell us about the fall and rise of Reddit, the sixth most popular website in the world. As with everything online, it tends to amplify all the folly and aspiration of real life. Something about as far away from Reddit as I could possibly stretch for is The Travelers Club, which is 200 years old. A.N. Wilson has written a rather bathos-laden account of it, and he's here to share some stories of a bygone era. And Imogen Russell-Williams, our regular reviewer of children's fiction, looks at books that help children deal with grief, which is a lovely, if rather challenging, thing to do. Last year's centenary of the end of the First World War led to a flurry of books and of course that included books for children. It also sparks a larger debate. How do you write about death and despair for a young audience? And that can mean addressing issues like warfare and mass slaughter, but also, perhaps pressingly, the deaths that come close to home, the inexplicable loss of parents or friends. Imogen Russell-Williams, the guru of children's literature for the TLS, has been reading widely as usual. She's found some good books about the war, and some that can act as a resource for the grieving, offering distressed adults the calming certainty of a script and baffled children the reassurance assurance of straightforward answers. She's in the studio to tell us more. Imogen, hello.
4: Hello. I feel I need to sound like a guru now, and I don't know what one sounds like. like but sounds a bit well like are. that.
2: <laughs> Just like that. Let's talk about the centenary of the war. Did it prompt good children's literature, or examples it, of it? It
4: certainly prompted a lot of children's <laughs> literature, but I think it did. I, I think it did um, throw up some really uh, interesting and uh, in-depth, meaty, complex, nuanced uh ways of addressing something so huge. I mean, it is hard for children to to get their heads round something as, as big and stark as this war that was supposed to be the war to end all wars. Um, and obviously by distilling that into individual stories, um, it's much easier for them to get a sense of the scale of the thing as a whole. It's
2: harder perhaps for them to... My son is seven and he, he's very familiar with the war through horrible histories, yes. which is sort of great historical accounts. Yes. So he knows how awful it was. But I just wonder how hard it is for them to, to truly empathise with someone being sent there and dying or losing a friend or losing a loved one. Is that, well, that the role of these books do you think? To yes, kind
4: of... absolutely I do. Um, I think that for instance books like uh, White Feather um, uh, which is a, published by Bangton Stoke, it's a, it's a very its a hyper-readable title so it's particularly dyslexia friendly but it's just also a fantastic novella. What it does is it provides this really strong sense of this was just a thing that happened to you uh, or to your mate, or to your brother, because um, what happens in White Feather is that a family is grieving, a mother and a son are grieving, because the older brother has been killed in the war, but he hasn't been killed in battle. He's been shot as a deserter. And so they're not only labouring under this huge burden of grief but they they don't have the support of their community in their grieving and they're isolated and shamed and the white feather of the title in fact is 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 offered by by charlie's old school teacher to to his younger brother which just is this this gut-twisting moment of cruelty um but it's also um uh, it's very it's it's limpid it's clear it's it's relatably written and it's also quite a in a way a cracking adventure story because um, the protagonist realises there is more to this story than meets the eye and he goes off and he he solves the mystery and in fact makes it clear that his brother did not deserve to die in this shameful way um, and I thought it was a real feat to distill all of that into this very slim little book.
2: Right, Should we talk about the other one that you mentioned because I've actually read it Ooh, well done. Unusually for a children's book. Hilary McKay's The Skylark's War, which won the Costa Award for Children's Book of the Year. You were one of the judges. I was. And I interviewed her on Front Row, so I had to read, read the book as well. And it tells the tale of a tale of a family, one of whom goes to War Rupert, who yes. is modelled on Rupert Brooke. I learned talking to, to, to the author um, and it's about but the the section on the wall is magnificently written with a sort of there's a thread of poetry kind of yes in the prose isn't there
4: there is absolutely and and Hillary's writing is just extraordinary um you don't realize how how extraordinary it is until you finish reading the book and you realize that you've just glided through yeah. it um uh, and yes i would say that 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 poetry in fact in his in in every part of the book um it, it it's about it is obviously it's about the um the wrench um and uh, and disruption and heartbreak of war but also it's about grief and people's competence in dealing with grief um as well um and, and the
2: cruelty of that the dad the yes. mum dies and the dad is this terrible parents.
4: Yes, and this is the thing, you know, Clary goes through much of her life believing that she was responsible Clary's the protagonist. She goes through much of her life believing that she was responsible for her mother's death because her mother died shortly after she was born. Um, And her brother Peter also believes this as a young child and so he starts out deeply resentful of this little mewling scrap who's stolen his mother from him. Um, And all it would have taken would have been for their father to make clear that this had not in fact been the case. To save so much heartache and heartbreak, um, and the fact that it didn't happen—it's not—it's never sort of shoved down your throat no. or spelled out for you, but it's just there as as this echoing waste, really, in the book.
3: And both of both of, both of these first two here seem seem to have very developed narratives and, and adventures within them of going to the Western Front or wherever it is. Where, whereas um, the Tony Ross book that that seems to offer a very different lesson because yes. it's just sort of for all the will of wanting to have a narrative and, and have control over. What might happen and how you tell the story?
4: It's just yes. The the, the lesson there is oh my goodness, um, you can have an ambition, you can even have a name, you can have an identity, uh, which is unlike the, all of your um, all of your little ant peers, um, but when war comes into the equation everything changes, the scale changes there is no more logic it's just everything is obliterated and you have no control over your destiny. It is an extraordinary book, it, it can kind of, I sort of hate read the, the reviews on Amazon because <laughs> there are people who have picked it up thinking that this is going to be sort of Tony Ross on little princess, very gentle very uh, toddler friendly kind of form and they're like well this is not suitable for children. Well yes it is. It's just <laughs> not not that age of child. Yeah. And so yes, what age is that aimed at? Um, well, I honestly think that that you could read that with with. Okay, so it, you need to have a sense of of war and what war can do, and that might be maybe six and up. But it kind of depends on the child. But I think that you could look at that book with teenagers um, and say, "What do you get from this? What do you think Ross was trying to do? What is the effect on you?" The
2: problem with the kids and war is. They still have the sense of it being like a game, don't they? That you know, they have. My son has Lego, and they'll just be battles, and death is meaningless in that. So yes, you have to have something that is an antidote to that. The idea of war is just a a conflict that that, that happens without any real sense of loss.
3: Well, it's clear in the title of that one that it's it's an well it's, it's an anti-war story. Yes,
2: <laughs> strong pun. game. Strong
4: pun. In, in, strong in, in, pun in, game there. Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. In, in
2: uh, but he's, he will have attracted an audience because he does David Williams, doesn't he, yes. as well? And uh, the Little Princess, I, I, I can see in my mind. They're very, they're yes. very bright colours and clear lines. Clear and
4: I mean, you know, the Little Princess titles are sort of the, uh, an example, would be I Want My Potty. That's the one I'm is, thinking yes. of. <laughs> yeah. That
2: is sadly what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Her shouting and. There's a king in there. Yeah. Yes,
4: exactly. I mean, they're very, they're very sweet and witty and charming um, takes on the idea that sort of uh, simultaneously that, that every family is royalty and every family is really down to earth. Yeah. Um, and they, they, they're beautiful. They work, they really do a good job for that age group. But that is much more. This is three to six um, classic picture book territory. And an anti war story is not the same, not the same kind of beast at all.
2: Should we we move on to some books, which I think are still are for very young children. It's about dealing with grief, and there's almost the most important thing a book could do, I suppose, of all types of children's book, is try and explain something like the loss of a parent or a friend, because that comes from nowhere for a child there's no context and giving context to that experience is presumably one of the functions of, of literature
4: the yes theory. absolutely and it is it's, it's quite a big ask uh, of a book but I think I, I know um from bookseller friends that it is a question that they ask daily what books do you have to help talk to children about grief so yes I'm definitely in favor of there being Many and brilliant titles, and some of the ones that we've touched on in this piece um, are just—they're um, heartbreaking, aren't they? Yes, oh,
3: only one of me sounds oh. gut wrenching.
4: If you if you try to read only one of me. Um, as a parent, then you will cry. Um, there's just no no way past that. I cried repeatedly. While I think I would
3: cry even cry even not as a parent. Yes. Um, <laughs> it just sounds
4: it really, it, an incredible it, project. It absolutely is. But it's just, I, I'm in awe um, of Lisa Wells. Um, and uh, when she was diagnosed with terminal mm. cancer, she wanted to put together a picture book to... Pass on to her children but also to help other families that, who found themselves in this situation. And so she set up an appeal uh, which was responded to by Michelle Robinson who, um, uh, who is an established children's book writer who is also a friend of hers um, and two different illustrators. Um, and the the text that, that, that has been put together is it's so very straightforward um, and it's not bells and whistles at all but it's just this is what you want to know about if you're in that situation and if there were more of me I would have more time to spend I could do all of these things that I want to do with you I could I could go on all of these trips and I could get up to these daft joyful playful things that we've shared together all our time but there isn't and our time together is limited and so Instead, we're going to ask the surviving parent and the rest of the family to try and become a little bit like me, the one you're going to lose. Um, and in the meantime, reassure you, the grieving child, it is all right to be happy sometimes. It's all right to be angry. It's all right to be sad, whatever form that sadness is going to take. And you just have to remember the fact of of the parent's love. Um, yeah.
2: Could you... I wonder what a child's reaction to this book would be. So, can you imagine a parent crying, an adult crying. Do you do you know how children respond to this type of book? Do they?
4: Children, I mean, just as grief is incredibly varied for adults, grief is very varied for children too. Um, I'm I'm sure you're familiar with kind of coming along with a with a book that you think is going to sort of solve everything, and the, the child you share it with may just respond with complete blankness, or may sort of wander off in search of cornflakes, but. I think that this book goes in at a level which is needed and then it can be returned to over and over again as well. There's another book which I haven't talked about in this piece, which, again, this is a title that will instantly make you cry. It's called Is Daddy Coming Back in a Minute? Um, and that deals yeah. with, um, with, worse, with, with even worse, with the sudden death of a parent. And the, the follow-up is called um, What Happened to Daddy's Body?, and these are just these are brutal questions, but they are the questions that children want answers to. Um, and they're also questions which adults on the spot find it very difficult to find answers to because, you know, what are you going to say? Something vague about stars and, and the sky? And, yeah. and you know, it, 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 well, we can talk about sleep. You'll never sleep again. That's not yeah. what I want to mm-hmm. talk about. So these this kind of book are, is incredibly valuable. Absolutely, really if you is. have no
2: faith. or I mean, because it's very easy if you have a narrative yourself yes, to put exactly. it in. But I would imagine most people now... They don't have a narrative. So, you, if you don't believe there's an afterlife, and we'll get to afterlives in a second, then you do need help, don't you? Yes, because, you
3: do.
4: Because
2: there really isn't an
4: answer. Well, you, no. talk, you
3: talk about the calming certainty of a script, which yes. is surely what everyone needs in, in exactly those moments, exactly. both parent and child.
4: Exactly. And and until this kind of awful situation arises, you may not know that you need that script. Um, but actually, I would I would heartily recommend, um hoping never to be in need of it but actually arming yourself ahead of time with a sense of, of the sort of thing that's out there.
2: Uh, you, we mentioned afterlives there because they're moving away from the personal children are endlessly fascinated with what happens next yes. in the way the adults kind of are because there's no answer heaven is a quite interesting concept the concept of death and rotting and the finality ex, excites children yes. uh, and, and to pretend that children are interested in death seems to me to misunderstand them they love it they love yes. talking about it and engaging with it do you get books here that aren't about grief they're about just the prospects of what happens after people die is that is that a fertile ground for, for absolutely
4: for um and yes again recently so we've had the glorious um the afterlife um the afterwards rather the afterwards, um yep. Which is by A.F. Harold, who's a poet, and again, that's sort of sparse. Um, assurance comes through in, in every line and illustrated by Emily Gravett and their, their partnership is just really really fruitful um, the sense of what might be, uh, there's lots of white space on the pages around both text and images and it feels as though that space that's left for a child to climb about in, in in his or her own imagination The Afterwards is about a child who has a dearly loved best friend um, she's grown up not knowing her mum because her mum died when she was quite small and now her best friend Ness has died and she's trying to make sense of a world without Ness and then there's a magnificently villainous uncle um, who who does a, a deal so shady that it sort of makes you wince from it and in order to get his beloved dog back who's died, he he basically shoves his niece into the afterlife uh, in (laughs) exchange for the soul of his dog. Um, That's a good story. Isn't it no, that. That's a good. That's a good plot. Isn't it though? <laughs> yeah. Um, and wh- when she's there, she she encounters Ness, and um, and and everything in the in the afterwards is sort of grey and increasingly glum and despondent. Um, and she's obviously desperate to get Ness back to the to the land of the living. She hasn't finished being with her best friend and adventuring and 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 laughing and getting up to all the stuff that they get up to every single day. But Ness is not so enthused. Ness is just sort of becoming more and more resigned and less and less there and not to mention that it's very hard to get back through to the to the world of the living because usually for a soul to pass back to the land of the living another living soul has to remain in in the afterwards it's
3: kind of like an Orpheus and Eurydice kind of yes. scenario
4: um exactly and and you've got this sort of it's like a hinterland as well um mm. they 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 move on the the spirits of the of the dead move on from the afterwards but we don't know where they go so it's not again it's not setting out an idea of having all the answers um as it's not a. This is this is the final place. It's more like it's a holding space. Um, and again, each, a children's imagination can climb around in there.
3: Seems, a, a s- seems It seems quite a, a bold choice to to make the afterwards, the, the afterworld, so kind of bleached of colour and. So so sad and dark.
4: It is, but then again, I think this the idea that it's a holding space. Um, and if you, you know, if we're going Greek mythology, the, yeah. the Asphodel Fields and so on, um, I think sort of it's quite a, a, resonant image, a popular image. The idea of it, as sort of slightly grey and shady, mm. and maybe you fade from there, and maybe you go somewhere else to be brighter. You can kind of fill in that part of the story for yourself. And
2: you want honesty, don't you? Yes. End, because if you say to children, "Oh, there's this place that does actually definitely exist." Well, at the very least, that that may not be true.
4: Yes, exactly. And um, I think, in fact, what the afterwards does is, is in a way, give permission to children to say, "We we have invented this, and it's it's rich and and terrifying and and strange and glum, and you can invent what comes after if you want to."
2: Yeah, I, I, Imogen, um, what a great pleasure it is to to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you.
3: This week's lead piece by Carl Miller gives a detailed account of the rise and squabbling continuation of the media company Reddit, which might not mean much to you if you never really got a grip on precisely what Reddit is, figuring or perhaps hoping it had little bearing on your own life. So, to recap, Reddit is the front page of the internet, the sixth most popular website in the world, with 330 million active users. It's a social news website where users, called Redditors, dictate the news agenda by voting stories up or down, and where people with often very niche passions, such as hating onions, can congregate and discuss. All of which only gives us an inkling of Reddit's true significance as a kind of social testing ground, a microcosm of, to use old-fashioned terminology, the real world. Carl Miller joins us in the studio now to tell us more. Hi, Carl. Hello. Maybe you could start by telling us about the button, because that really seems to illustrate how Reddit works and its kind of weird power.
6: It does. It's the best story, I think, for really understanding Reddit if you don't know anything about Reddit. The button just (laughs) appeared on April's Fool's Day. It was just a a page on Reddit. It had a counter ticking down from a minute um, and then a button that people could press. Um, Those were pretty much the rules. If you pressed the button once, you couldn't press it again. Um, and once you pressed the button a small kind of little symbol would appear by your name on Reddit with a different colour in it was kind of one of these experiments which Reddit did where they basically almost didn't tell their community anything else, it was like this kind of canvas, they just wanted to see what would happen 10 million Clicks of the button. Later, the experiment was pretty much over, and and, and over that time, basically, new religions had emerged. <laughs> there were theologies, philosophies. There were wars. There were alliances. There were those that were trying to keep the button going forever. There was those that were trying to destroy it to see what happened next. There the, were, the,
3: the perps and the, the indeed, yeah,
6: yeah. So the, yeah, uh, what the the perps do. So the perps are people that press the button at the very beginning. Um, and it goes and they, purple. Yeah, and, the, and and that was a kind of a, a religion which was dedicated to keeping the button going. The Emerald Council were those that this pressed is, the is, button at the side. middle point. And, and these are people <laughs> that kind of... and Genuinely, there are thousands of pages of kind of essentially theology written on this they they stood for balance they were trying to balance the different warring tribes and the kind of most dedicated group i'm sure i'm sure there might be redisters that will flame you for this yeah. but the most dedicated group with the red guard these are people that watch the button for hours and hours on end and waited to try and press it in the last 11 seconds or so and and then you got a kind of really coveted little red kind of shoulder flash on so your how row. did
2: it work So if so the buttons there were you competing to see we could it, could you all press at the same time, or could only one person? Only
6: one person could press it at any point, right? And then the then the counter would just reset. Uh, reset. Yeah. So
2: if you press it at the same time as someone else, they might have pressed it rather than you.
6: Yeah, and and it will just reset, and then the and then the page will reset, and it would begin you, again.
3: You only get to do it once, one person, one you've clicked. One click, that's
2: uh, it. And are people using the? Is this this kind of internet irony? Is it just people a bit Dungeons and Dragonsy? They're trying to sort of find an, another world to to invent theology around what what's the motivation cuz would you do that would you well, click
6: it's 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 a, it's a lot like um, kind of most of reddit generally, which is that it's partly tongue-in-cheek, yeah. um, but it's also genuinely meaningful to the people that do it. And, and you know, you become mired in it, I think. I, I remember watching the, the, the button experiment unfold and, and seeing these kind of, um, you know, narratives and groups forming in ways which, like, genuinely meant something to the people in it. And that, I think, really encapsulates Reddit in a single button click, as it were. It's, it, it's, it's a culture factory.
2: And are they satirising? I mean, presumably it's satirising religion at some level is people arbitrarily gathering, you know, not even necessarily religion, but society generally, people arbitrarily collecting into different tribes even though it's meaningless ultimately, but they've they've attributed meaning to something and they are setting themselves up against other people who have attributed other meanings to it also without cause. That seems to be a sort of quite prolonged, absurdist satire of, of human society. <laughs> well, I think
6: I think ultimately many tribes are, are, are in a kind of absolute sense meaningless, yeah, but, exactly. but, but certainly arbitrary, meaningful. Yeah, arbitrary, yeah, arbitrary but, but meaningful to the people that are in them and, and actually there I, I, I don't see much difference between the perps and the Emerald Council and lots of different tribes which we form ourselves into in society yeah. So is it, is it
2: trying to be a, sat- a satirical pastiche of, of real society there do you think?
6: There were, there, I'm sure there were satirists and, and, and pastiches in there, but, but I think it actually went beyond that. It wasn't just a kind of satire of, of, um, of the offline world. I think for the many people that did it, I think it was actually meaningful in and of itself. So they were,
2: they were genuinely feeling part of a tribe of whatever, uh, whatever thing they aligned themselves to, and that, that gave them genuine meaning. And that
6: is Reddit. The, the Reddit is, is the ability to generate and form these kind of uh, online subcultures in that way. And, 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 and that's what makes it such an exciting place because it's kind of doing so at a rate, I think, that we've just never seen before. Culture generally is something which we regard to kind of rise and fall and change on quite a kind of glacial or apocal scale. And suddenly with Reddit, we're seeing it happen almost like it's in kind of fast forward. Yeah. Well, that,
3: And that in a sense, I mean, it, it very much sounds like something that was created as a, a social experiment, but I mean, what, what was the context of its foundation? Because you, your, your piece is, is, it's pegged to a book, which Indeed. is about, uh, what's it called? It's called uh, We Are the Nerds, The Birth and Tumultuous Rise of Reddit, The Internet's Culture Laboratory. So uh, that's a kind of a biography of Reddit. Tell it, well, what what was the foundation of this company? What was it conceived to do?
6: so yeah it, it's, and this is what the, so the, the book essentially begins with this it's the kind of early noughties um, the two main founders Steve Huffman and Alexis Ahanian um, kind of meet as most of the tech founders do on some campus in America. And, and they kind of come up with this idea that, that there's, there should be a different way in which information could be created. So um, they, they began it really as quite a simple, crude website where people could just source and share links from elsewhere on the Internet, which you could essentially up or downvote. Um, they thought that this would be a better way, especially because most of the early users were essentially power users. They're kind of friends in the kind of VC and tech communities uh, across the States um, of sourcing content. And this was especially content around um, technology and games and online culture and things like that. Um, that's really what it was. It was it was simple. So it not to make money.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, there, there was no advertising in the model, for example.
6: There okay. wasn't. And, and Reddit, Reddit, struggled to make money for a very long time and that's actually consistent with lots of the tech companies as well the kind mm, yeah. of money is just considered almost this kind of you know slightly kind of dirty question which you deal with later if you okay? get an
2: audience eventually mm. the theory is you'll be able to make money the holy
6: grail is growth yeah Get growth, sell. get users, and you will find a way of making money later on.
2: Which is kind of what Amazon have done, ultimately. Amazon didn't make money for years and years. They just kept growing and growing and growing and growing. Netflix is still doing that. Aren't Uber, they?
6: Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, Snapchat. It's, it's all about growth. And, yeah. you know, and in that way, this book, We Are the Nerds, and the story that it tells of Reddit is actually a kind of very interesting insight more generally into the kind of culture and thinking of Silicon Valley and you know right at the, this kind of golden moment this collection of people and it's not just uh, Hanian and Huffman the, the many others which have kind of walk on parts in the book are some of the most important kind of architects of the digital world in which we now live and you get a kind of insight into the very early part of that you know before they were all multi-billionaire kind of famous kind of world striding visionaries these are just a bunch of of, you know, driven, um, risk-taking kind of technopreneur kind of students. You know, all basically embarking on this on this crazy journey together. Um, and it's one where they're all trying to build platforms that, that will grow um, and kind of kind of gobble up the world and all of us.
3: And this becomes I- I exceedingly interesting, I would say, when it when that world there clashes with the conventional old world. So you know, old media, uh, and it's bought by Condé Nast. In is it two thousand and? Six.
6: Indeed, yeah. And this was, I suppose, another thread is is of the old world of publishing, desperately trying to co-opt and, and emulate, in, in a sense, the successes that they see happening with sites like Reddit and Dig and many other social publishing sites. Um, there's a kind of big tension between them. And, and um, both Huffman and Ahanian, in fact, some way uh, the, towards the end of the beginning of the book, kind of leave Reddit um, as they kind of chafe with both each other and with and with their new corporate owners. Because
2: the principle of the corporation wants to say, here's a massive audience, we want to sell things to it. And the principles of Reddit, which is why it became popular, was there is no top-down uh, direction at all. Redditors, people in the community, are choosing whatever they want to talk about, whatever they want to upvote, whatever they want to celebrate. That can't be directed by a corporate machine selling advertising because it's, it defeats the whole point of the site to begin with.
6: Indeed so monetization is, is one of the tensions that kind of go throughout Reddit's life and, and the other one is editorial control I mean Condé Nast as any publishing organisation is, is used to essentially controlling the content which within the properties which they own are legally responsible for and you can kind of feel the, the kind of terror really that Condé Nast and, um, and the kind of various old guard of the publishing world begin to feel when they realise that what they've really bought here isn't a web site it's a series of communities and communities that are very willing throughout reddit's life to muscularly push back and assert that they are the ones that really control the platform i mean there's almost a kind of frankenstein moment at one part part of the book where um um uh, they've they, they try and um essentially reddit users hack sears's website and start writing silly things across it and and condé Nast clears clears that content off and then reddit kind of goes into revolt in 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 response um there's a frankenstein moment where they basically realize that they can't control this thing which they've created and it and it kind of begins to snowball and free um, more, more and more and more and more and becomes more and
2: more uncontrollable that-
6: and the,
3: the, the outrage is certainly something that I think most people associate with Reddit. So we should talk about that. And,
2: and- yeah, is it a me? I mean, because at one level this sounds very utopian—a bunch of nice people gathering together, uh, collecting around their shared interests. Sounds this like a be a lo- what it be a lot. Reddit is known for. It sounds like a <laughs> lovely thing. But is, does it also, like so many things on the internet, then become toxic by virtue of people using that? Opportunity to not be nice about their fellow human being but to be mean.
6: Yeah, Toxic Sludge is the way the, the author uh, um, actually describes it. And indeed, the, the kind of story begins to take a kind of much darker turn. Um, as the subreddits kind of, in, these are the communities within Reddit, um, kind of expand and multiply, um, Reddit goes on to the kind of sharp end of the debates around free speech versus hate on the internet. Um, and it, it kind of becomes host of um these kind of whole under layer of websites which become exceedingly problematic everything from um the, the subreddits dedicated to kind of notions of genetic superiority to ones dedicated to hate towards a particular community to ones which are sexualizing children they're all there on reddit um, and because the community in general is is so kind of muscular and ability to throw its weight around is so great and 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 its kind of commitment to kind of Anti-censorship, to use air quotes, is so strong. Um, the the company founders and really really struggles to bring these things under control. Um, it, not one but two CEOs, um, after uh, Ahanian and, and Huffman leave, um, are, are taken as scalps by the by the Reddit community. And it's only then when the founders actually return that to the, that that they can begin to bring this community
2: back under control. But you can never really control it because at some level, this is the test of what we believe absolute free speech should be. Should free speech be absolute? And no one really thinks it should be. But you can get into this game, particularly in, in this this world, and believing that it is. If people want to say things about children or about communities, we might not agree with it, but we believe absolutely in, in free speech. That, and that, 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 is a, that is an article of faith for some people, isn't it?
6: Indeed. And, and so Ellen Powell, the, one of these departed CEOs, um, she um, only tried to shut down subreddits that were... Um, calling for or glorifying violence towards a particular group that is a pretty low bar by anyone's <laughs> standards um they weren't touching anything to do with genetic superiority they weren't touching anything to do with all the you know large on the number of indecent ways in which subreddits were then many subreddits were then acting um it was just that and and you know the uh, hundreds of subreddits closed down bounties are put on her head her her faces memed onto pictures of chairman Mao and and Hitler um you're right and there was I think around the 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 time that Reddit was struggling with this a very kind of absolute commitment to free speech amongst online communities they I think they saw that as the kind of thin end of the wedge when it came to kind of state control and corporate control onto their free willing spaces
3: and then Huffman and Ohanian came back so after the kind of the, the friction over the Conde Nast um buying them they came back and now they are Flexing muscles, and they are sort of seeking to control the communities. How does that? How does that work? Presumably, it's a it's a losing battle.
6: So uh, yeah, indeed. So they they come back and they they try and deal with probably the two big problems that Reddit had. The first is um, Huffman, who's then the CEO, kind of directly challenges the community and tries to bring it under control. They 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 don't draw hard lines in the sand, but they begin to make kind of better definition around what they would allow what they wouldn't allow on the platform Um, and actually at least from um uh Logorio Chavkin's telling of it um actually do so with large degree of success they they shut down lots of the subreddits that they clear away the toxic sludge as it were um with with kind of little response um from the community and then um Ahanian um goes around making the money he he kind of um kind of is the kind of showman to to Huffman's kind of um, arch-coder and he goes around kind of making big deals with advertisers and, and starts to find new ways of uh, Reddit making money. And does
2: it make money now? I, I, actually, I'm not sure now. It, no it's one knows these no, things. It's, it's, the it's fascinating thing about the online world. You imagine they all must do and then it's not always clear that they do. It's not,
6: but um, they, they, they definitely, in the kind of telling of this story, start making a lot more money. Um, they kind of clear out of the red um, and, and actually... Become kind of self-sufficient or sustainable as a company again,
2: but we don't know how, whether how much that translates to profitability.
6: We don't. We 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 know that Ohanian and Huffman are exceedingly exceedingly rich
2: individuals because the um, company will be valued. Did it did it launch? is it is it IPO'd or is it? I don't think it has. I, I, I don't think so. No. So at some point they'll become even richer individuals. You, you you might imagine,
6: but but also very famous. And and this is the kind of strange kind of character of the Silicon Valley kind of CEOs as opposed to any other is that they're not just seen as kind of business leaders they're actually seen as kind of visionaries yeah kind of people that can kind of look into the future Mm. and and tell what the world is like demigods yeah um and and so they become kind of famous in their own right kind of celebrities especially especially Ahanian um who kind of I suppose then kind of build Kind of broader stages to to start talking about the problems which Reddit specifically faced.
2: But what's its legacy really now? So it's gone. It's, it's had its slightly tortuous growth and rise and fall and, and rise again. What is it now? I mean, and what's its what's what, where does it go next? Because if if it's just an aggregation place for a community, that's lovely. Does that is that what it is? That this is kind of we reached peak Reddit now? Do you feel um, it's impossible to say? Maybe you don't know what.
6: I think I I think kind of Reddit probably like most tech companies are on this kind of long slow road to social decency. Um, <laughs> you know they are, they are being politically embarrassed. Um, they are being and will likely be more intensively regulated in in the years to come. Um, so I think Reddit is is has certainly departed from their kind of absolutist free speech kind of background. They no longer see those subreddits as being part of what Reddit's about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that Reddit will become this kind of mainstream cultural factory. Fine if you're, um, you know, into botany or or even politics.
2: Yeah, um, Obama, Obama did an AMA, didn't he? He did too. And
6: and and the Donald is the most important kind of focus point for um, the alt right and pro Trump uh, communities online. Um, it kind of bleeds over with 4chan, but it you know the, so Reddit Red, is Red, Reddit
2: is quite. There's, there's lots of pro-Trump aspects of Reddit. Absolutely.
6: Very, yes. It's,
3: it's, it, well, it's been called a kind of a uh, what's it, a recruitment ground for for the alt-right, hasn't it? It's,
6: it's it's probably the largest, really? uh, most uh, kind of vigorous gathering place for the alt-right on the internet, um, which is saying something. And
2: that's one of the changes, isn't it? Because historically, and this is true, I think probably originally of Facebook as well and Twitter, they always seem to skew left or skew liberal because of the the ideals of free speech that often came in their founding. But then they've been co-opted by the right and and that's presumably the same thing that's happened to reddit then
6: indeed yeah but the, the kind of very nasty kind of parts of both right left and all other nasty ideologies that kind of lurk on the margins they've kind of been pushed off reddit and are now kind of setting up new kind of shops in the alt tech world
2: because because the argument now is that de-platforming is possible to deal with it so um alex jones the idiot who does info Wars, was kicked off itunes wasn't he and um, and, Twitter. and Twitter, Milo Yiannopoulos was kicked off, Twitter possibly Facebook, maybe he's still on Facebook but and you've seen it has a massive effect on their fortunes, Milo Yiannopoulos massively mm. in debt Alex Jones it, he feels less culturally resonant than he did before because he can't be found, so there is power here isn't there, that ultimately if Reddit kicks people off if Facebook kicks people off it's possible for people to be marginalised in a way. Now, whether that's a good or bad thing for free discourse is a different question, but it is a powerful tool that that can be used.
6: Yeah, and that's the kind of part of the kind of debate around free speech, which we actually don't hear much from the platforms themselves on. They're, They're quite keen to talk about the policies and rules governing their users, much less that they now make as you've just said, like unbelievably important decisions themselves about the, what the nature of these free and open spaces should be like. I mean, Reddit was never an enormous company. I mean, it had probably at its height several hundred employees with, with some others scattered around, you know, many of which were under, I mean, a, a, actually getting PTSD as, yeah. the, as, the, uh, as, the, as, as the author writes. Um, never a huge company, but making huge decisions all the time um, often this kind of grey, murky area where it's actually not clear what the decision should be, and where we've always relied on the kind of messy business of politics to try and form some kind of compromise for us, and 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 with Reddit, actually, you know, this this was a company, as it is with Facebook or Twitter or any other, um, actually drawing those lines. Um, so yeah, there's there's another there's a, there's another aspect of free speech and Reddit's rise and fall and then rise again, which 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 is interesting, which is really the at the heart of this enormous kind of um array of different communities is actually a reasonably small number of people um exercising power exercising uh, uh, power which i think we we're not really used to any private company really holding
2: watch this space because that's going to that's going to carry on isn't it that's the that's the way things are going i i i i think so
6: absolutely yeah i think um we're living through the tech lash at the moment, uh, as, as, as they now call it. Like you know, that. a kind of swing of authors and writers and journalists. Because about the word
2: tech. tech is, it can be interpolated into almost any word, can't it, <laughs> to, uh, to create a new coinage? I it's, like, very,
6: it's very useful for yeah. writers like me, actually. Yeah,
2: what was the tech? What was the entrep- what was, how did you do entrepreneur with tech?
6: Oh, technopreneur. No, I was just Techno- thinking on my feet for that, it, that I new? Yeah, yeah
2: that might be a coinage. Good. Oh, technopreneur. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> trademark, trademark that. Carmel, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. The Travellers Club has been around for 200 years and is marking its bicentennial with a history reviewed this week by one of its members, A.N. Wilson. The club began soon after the Napoleonic Wars, founded by men looking to gather in a less political setting than many of the existing London clubs. Since then, according to Andrew, its story becomes the history in miniature of Britain itself. This is particularly true perhaps in the sense that it was once grand and central in the scheme of things and is now a shadow of its former self and of its place in the world. One of the travellers' former chairman believes that the gentlemen's Club does have a future into the next century. We are a very conservative country, he said. Do we believe that? And is there really a place for single-sex institutions trading on prior glories in modern Britain? These are the questions posed by Ian Wilson this week, and he joins us in the studio to try and answer them. Andrew, hello. Hello there. Now, this might be unfair, but when I think of gentlemen's clubs, I kind of think of men snoozing before a fire riddled with gout.
7: Yes, if I, if, if, if I mean, that's, that, that's if you actually know what they are at all. Yeah. Because most people hearing the word gentlemen's club think it means a sleazy place. Like a strip, a strip club? strip joint. But I think of... <laughs> or I think pole it, dancing. Yeah. the
2: complete opposite, in a sense. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, no <laughs> women at all. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, yeah. There aren't even boys' pole dancing. No, no, yeah. <laughs> so what sort of club is this? Uh, but is that fair? Is that fair? I, mean, I think it's perfectly fair.
7: And, I mean, the fact... When I read this book, which is a brilliant book written by an architectural historian, but he's brought in all the social history of the club and he tells you about the lives of the club servants in the 19th century, which was just awful, actually. Um, Oh, really? Yes, because they were all being had up by the police all the time. And he seems a little bit baffled about why this is but they obviously weren't bloody paid enough.
2: No, actually, but you say Um, here that one of the, the, the things about the club was the people were boring, but the staff were nice. So the staff I were said kind that,
7: of I said that about them now. Oh, <laughs> really, oh but, but not
2: so much in the, back in the 19th century. I'm, just, I'm
7: not sure about them in the 19th century. But I, mean, I mean, what this book shows you is that here's this institution. Most people listening to this won't even know what a club is, really. It was started for people who didn't want to come back to London when they'd been travelling. They were all aristocrats um, and get involved with either a Tory club or a Whig club or left or right, whatever you So this it. is the age of
2: whites and, and Boodles yes, and things exactly. like
7: that. And instead they just wanted to have a place where they could play whist, have a good time. But little by little by little, because they were the poshocracy of England and they were absolutely running the show, in a way more than at any time in history, um... It became a kind of hub. Four of the Victorian Prime Ministers belonged to this place. Um, stuff got done here. The people, people discussed the future of the world here. Yeah, there's and a line, I mean, there's a line it,
2: in the book the Crimean War is quite a traveller's effort. Well,
7: <laughs> <laughs> well it was. I mean, the Russian, amb- all the ambassadors in London de facto belonged to the travellers. Um, so mm. the Russian ambassador belonged to it. All the characters who were taking part in the charge of the library, were volleying and thundering in the club before they set out mm-hmm. on their ridiculous war. Um, so so the it really was a, uh, and I mean Lord Aberdeen belonged to it Lord Palmerston belonged to it um, they were all fighting that war before it even started in the smoking room of this club
2: and what attracted you to it? Is that was that because you mentioned um, the I didn't
7: have a flat I couldn't have afforded a flat on the wages I was getting as a journalist in London when I started out in my late 20s and then someone said um, not at all an aristocrat or indeed much of a traveller another journalist why don't you belong to this place it's much cheaper than staying in a hotel it's much cheaper than having a flat and I joined. So you could, what, you could you sleep should, there? You could sleep you there? Should, you should stay there for about uh, 60 or 70 pounds a night, which of course was much. N- uh, and also, you had this wonderful library, yeah. which in those days, I mean, now it's always used for functions, so you can't <laughs> <laughs> get into the bloody place. But I mean, in those days, it was completely deserted, and there were just a few rather sad John le carre like spies <laughs> hovering about in the bar. <laughs> and oh, there, there is, there it is was is very smelly in those days. Um, oh, no. The, the paint was peeling off the walls, and uh, the membership was plummeting. It was like the Church of England, which I suppose (laughs) is where I've (laughs) already quite liked it. But I mean, it seemed to be an absolutely no-hope place. And then now, look at it, it's absolutely bursting with launch parties in the evenings, and
3: well, but before we get on to the, yeah. the, the relaunch, let's talk about the, the decline. How do we account for that? Is it a sort of Was it a sort of, you know, 1910, the character change sort changed sort of thing? changed, exactly.
7: And yeah. that's what this book really well describes because in the 19th century it was all the stuff I've described. And there's a wonderful story which Harold Nicholson tells in one of his books, he was a member of it, that um, he looked across the garden and was told by his boss in the Foreign Office, you may think we've declared war against Germany today, but actually it was all done in the wrong way. He drops a nift across the yard and gets into the German embassy and spots the letters <laughs> around. It's like a sort of Bertie Wooster. So
2: how they got it wrong? You tell this story. What's what? Um,
7: he doesn't explain, but it wasn't the, the form of words was wrong, and so actually we weren't at war with Germany. Guess they made a mistake. And <laughs> he, he gets into the German ambassador's bedroom and spots the letters around. It is like Bertie Wooster. It's a anyway, he was an admitted alternative to alternative history. Yeah,
3: <laughs>
2: yeah the, the, he was admitted to the presence of the adorned Prince Lichnowsky, who assumed the youth had come in a social capacity to express regrets. <laughs> The war interrupted their association. <laughs> and then there's a, the declaration the, the, of war was sitting on a, was, a side table and he swiped it's
7: it. it. It's on his bedroom, bedside table. And he put the one <laughs> in. And, exactly. And, and we then proceeded to war. And the rest was history. But I mean, I think the answer to your question is uh, why it declined. Um, all those poshos either got killed in the First World War mm. or, in a way, gave up this type of club. They had their own, in, like whites and boodles and things, which were around the corner. This became a preserve of the Foreign Office, and it's still, in a way, the canteen of the Foreign Office, and that's what it was. But little by little by little, as described by the fact that even I was out allowed to join it as sort of hack, <laughs> lower middle <laughs>
2: class. Um, th- that I mean, it's it's entirely lost any of its cachet. It makes me sad when you said that, Andrew. I'm acutely aware of the fact that if the club admitted someone like me, it had ceased to be what it was in the days of Palmerston and Aberdeen.
7: Exactly. No, of course it had. I mean, it it had ceased to have any function at all when I joined it, um, except as a canteen for some old-fashioned members of the Foreign Office. Then, um, just at the point where it seemed as though it was going to have to close, it got a new club secretary, and it was basically revamped as a kind of hotel.
2: But it can't... um, Let's let's talk about the question of the single-sex aspect of it, because when we talk about the relevance today, it makes it just seem silly, doesn't it? Uh,
7: Completely silly. I mean, the, um, the Reform Club, which is next door, which is the great liberal club of the 19th century, um, that went mixed about 20 years ago. The Athenaeum, which is where all the professors and bishops and things used to belong, I don't know if they still do, um, that went mixed about 25 years
2: ago. The Garrick's holding the Garrick's out, still isn't it? Still the is it. Yeah. The
7: Garrick held out. The travellers ought to be mixed because, as I say, half the ambassadors in London are now women, and all the ambassadors technically belong to it. So there are, let's say, 100 women who belong to the travellers. So they're sort club.
3: of talking themselves into irrelevance. It's
7: well, if they, if they would, don't yes, exist. Yes so, yes, so why
2: don't they? What, what, what's the thinking? Cause
7: I mean, they are, they're on the verge of doing so, I would guess. Do you guess. think? I would guess, yes. Because... I don't sit on their committees, but I would, th- I would think that it's within five years that it will be mixed. But there are some clubs, both for women and men, that don't admit members of the opposite sex, and I don't see why they should have to in terms of the law. But you're right to say it makes sense. No, I'm not I mean, Well, I
3: mean, if it's, if it's a meeting place for diplomats, members of the Foreign Office... Exactly.
7: Yeah. It, I mean, if, it's a, if it's a place where sort of professional people are meeting... It's obviously completely ludicrous that it should be one gender.
2: Um, are you attracted to one of the things that, that struck me about reading the piece, Andrew? That the history weighs heavily while you're there. Do you, yes. Do you, you feel, I, mean, do I you, feel do it
7: do even. I felt it even more when I first joined. Partly because I was much younger, felt quite shy going into the place. Partly because so little had been done to it, so that you really were holding the very rail on the steps, the staircase, which yeah. Tellerong used to hold on to when he was staggering up the stairs. Yeah. Um, And there definitely is a feeling of the past, which I like about London. I mean, that's one of the things you get wondering about London, wherever you may be.
2: There's an amazing quote, I can't remember, or by uh, Trevelyan, I think, which is about the beauty of living in Britain, which is that almost every footstep you take anywhere is a footstep that your predecessor's very different In their lives have had, and and you can't escape history. And and now
7: now the travellers' club has been done up beautifully and looks lovely, and you can stay there. And I mean, whether you belong to it or not, women can stay there and all that sort of thing. They can eat their breakfast Scandalous. (laughs) Um, So that um, it it does, it's fine, but it isn't quite what it was, and um, it's now just like a kind of hotel. Uh, and does it, have, has a membership. List. And
2: does it stand as a kind of metonymy for Britain? Because back in the nineteenth century Britain was ruling the waves and these Victorian figures were deciding the fates of nations and the fates of literally millions so, of yeah so. Millions of people. Yes. And now it's a hotel, and we don't quite know it's place in the world. And you know, I don't want to, to, to raise the spectre of Brexit, but really if you do a course of foreign met, influence... The
7: metaphor you're describing leads inexorably to the word Brexit somehow. <laughs> do you, do you, I mean, needless to say, most members of the Travellers Club being foreign office, were passionately against Brexit. But it is like a kind of metaphor, as Brexit itself is, for what's happened. Namely, this country has been completely marginalised in the world. Yeah, and even, I mean. and the other thing it shows is, um, obviously, you can't govern a country by having a special class like Plato's Guardians, which you used to have. They were sent to public schools or sent to yep. the foreign office. Uh, that's all gone. But what we haven't got, because we haven't got Plato, um, there's no particular reason why anybody should enter public life who's, who is talented. Um, nowadays, a talented person would be working on the TLS or going into the city or being a teacher or doctor. Yeah. Uh, there's no reason why they would join the House of Commons.
2: Um, it's such a good point. I mean, why would you, I mean when Ruth Davidson gave an interview, the Scottish leader of uh, the Tories, and said, I wouldn't want to be prime minister, and it was kind of front page news. but. I wouldn't want to be prime minister. Would you? Would you want to be prime minister now? <laughs> 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 well, no. I mean, what, I mean, the bunch, every day you think, "Why does Theresa of
7: morons and lunatics yeah. baying at you, whatever you said or did?"
2: But the problem is that we haven't come up with the answer to that, have we? Because no. it used to be uh, based on birth and and you know and add, education though. and education. Yeah, I mean, but, that was the, saving the two, thing. The, the, two the, the two connected. But, part, but the saving
7: thing about this country, unlike pre-revolutionary France, was uh, if you're clever, you should get on. And is that always the case? Well, obviously not always the case, even but it, now. No, but, well, um, certainly not now. But it certainly was, it was the case, yes. And particularly in terms of academic life, uh, the professions and so on. Uh, you, could, you could reel off dozens of examples. Obviously, when, when you got to the higher edge of things, and those clever people's grandchildren had then made themselves into earls or marquises or something, yeah. then th- there would be a lot of snobbery coming in. But in terms of education, you could get into the professions which would lead into political life within a couple of generations. So do you
2: think there was genuine talent there? Yeah. And that talent's not there now?
7: No. They're not, uh, the politicians now are not so clever as the Victorian politicians. Otherwise, we wouldn't have bloody Brexit or lots of other things you can mention. <laughs> do, you reckon, do you think? Well, look at the... I mean, all right. Well, don't, the Victorians don't did so far of as cataclysm, as the, cataclysms, not do. Oh, yes, they did. But don't go back so far as the... Um, as a Victorian, think of the Labour Party, which used to have Michael Foote, who wrote quite good books, yeah, that was yeah. a clever man, always to be seen rummaging about in second hand bookshops of Charing Cross Road, Roy Jenkins, ditto, though he was the opposite end of the Labour Party, yeah. Dennis Healy, a very cultivated person. Um, where are they now?
2: Would that, yeah, and and, and you, where are the Tory equivalents? And do we want, I mean, does, does being bookish matter when it comes yes, to. Yes,
7: because it leads to wisdom, it leads to historical sense, it leads yeah. to lots of things. And Would it that, leads to a rounded, uh, humane. Um, personality,
2: and what's fascinating, I think, about the mess we're in, which we can link largely to David Cameron in lots of respects. Certainly. He's a member of an entitled class who went to a, went to Eton and felt he could become prime minister because Just of because, he had, yes. because because he had that sort of background, which is not so far removed from. The 19th century except in talent terms and exactly. possibly in terms of, of it's, it's, the quality of it, it, knowledge it is
7: talent and if you think of boris too because he knows about six words of latin everyone oh. thinks he's a genius Jacob
2: Rees-Mogg is the other
7: one and well. Jacob Rees well we didn't get onto that but
2: well we do i think we should because to <laughs> but, me they they example i'm interested because they're kind well, of exam- they they're examples of, a, of, a, of
7: a- bargain basement poshocracy aren't they yeah
2: people? but and what frustrates me about brexit is they say things like they use needless Wrote Oraton metaphors to pretend that they're clever. Uh, it's a, uh, it's just or, or, posturing. It's posture. It's exactly right, though. It's, sure it's posture. And, and so this is the worst treaty since the 1115
3: Treaty of Leon. Exactly. you fuck's If I can't tell you what that treaty is, that that must mean that you are you cleverer won. than I. So you've won, yeah. and I'll back down.
2: Yeah, uh,
7: no, that's nauseating.
2: It it is nauseating. Now I want to check one story, Andrew, because this suspiciously doesn't sound true. I don't <laughs> yeah. want. To, I don't want to impugn you.
7: Dear, oh dear, you should have put...
2: I should have put you, you on water. It OK, presently. someone died at the long central oh, no, no. table in the coffee room once when I was having dinner with <laughs> the travellers, an event that remained unobserved. He was offered some stilton at the end of
7: the <laughs> meal. And if it,
3: if it isn't true, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter it's I, a fantastic story. absolutely
7: <laughs> true. I, I was having <laughs> l- dinner with some friends, and one of them said, I know this is the most boring bloody place in London, but somebody over there has died of boredom. <laughs> and it was true. He died and, and noticed... It took and he, long- was, he was sitting with... He was one of those people who sat at the table... Propping himself up, by, not by putting his hands, but by putting his wrists against the table, yeah. um, and, and try it next time you die because <laughs> it, it, it keeps it keeps you upright. And I felt extremely sorry for the head waiter because he had to go round sort of quietly telling us, and they sa- he said, he said, Sir X, he was a lawyer. Um, I'm afraid has been taken ill. It was obvious he was dead. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's as white as the paper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and they, then a woman uh, who was having dinner, was, who was a doctor, came over and laid him out on the carpet. Now he, it, it really did happen.
3: Did, did you not clear out of the room? At yes, this everyone point? cleared out. Everyone up. cleared out. Okay, good. And <laughs> and no, everyone just, cleared
7: out. The British
2: thing to do <laughs> would, would be to carry on. <laughs> Some hooray
7: Henrys at the end were shouting out, We haven't finished our dinner yet! <laughs> <laughs>
2: See, it's very hard to remain angry at the concept of the Travelers Club <laughs> or any the other club, because it it just feels rather. Well the point travel- about
7: it is, it's standoffish. I mean, it's not like the Garrick, which is trying to flash Harry's Club, where everyone's standing one another, drinks in the bar and so on. It's uh, it's pinched and unhappy, and it's for re- it's for repressed homosexuals in the in the foreign office. Really, that's what it's for now or was. But now it's as I say, it's a sort of.
3: it well, they'll, they'll include that in their marketing. <laughs> <definitely>. <laughs> if you're a
2: repressed. Yeah, in the, in the but that's office. what it used to be. Anyway. Um, <laughs> it reminds me a bit of the Diogenes Club, which is well. That's,
7: it's based. The Diogenes is based on it. Is that right? And when you join, I mean, when you joined in my day, they said uh, you can belong to a oh boy, but the thing is, we don't talk to one another.
2: Yeah. Do you know about the Diogenes here? So Sherlock Holmes's brother, Michael. Oh
3: yes, no, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He sits in a
2: club, films. and and if you speak, if you, I think if, if you speak in certain rooms, you are Black ball from a club for, for you're eternity, aren't you? You're asked, you're asked to leave, and so that's model on the travellers. Yes, it, it is.
7: <laughs> they have there's a nice room where people chat and there are magazines and uh, it's mixed, uh, but then there's a smoking room where obviously you're not allowed to smoke anymore. Uh, <laughs> but she's still exactly as it was when Mycroft Holmes was sitting there not talking to anybody. Bliss. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Imogen Russell-Williams, Carl Miller and Andrew Wilson. Make sure you get your hands on the paper this week. It really does cover a lot of ground, as might be suggested by this podcast. Next week, we look, among other things, at the North, Thea.
1: Hello. Your spiritual home. (laughs)
2: Yes. Uh, You'll be bringing your whippet in especially.
3: I'm actually trying to get one.
2: You're not. Speci- no, not especially no. oh. for the
3: occasion, but I am trying to um, acquire a dog. Are you? I am. Oh, yeah, maybe home check today. What is, what, so we'll, what, well, they have to check whether you're, you know, do they allowed to have a dog? Whether, I got.
2: Yeah. I got a dog without that.
3: Yeah, but did you buy it or did you take it from a rescue centre? Oh, I bought one. Oh there you go. So you're, did, <laughs> Judging okay. you now. Oh,
2: really? Well, I've got young, <laughs> very young kids, so I was trying to try and get a puppy.
3: One without trauma.
2: Yeah. yeah. So, who what you're going to get? What are you going to get? This is amazing. News. Whatever's
3: going, really, very excited about it.
2: And when when will it come? <laughs> Don't know. Oh, how brilliant.
3: (laughs) Updates to follow. Oh, great.
2: Well, there you go. Well, we won't be talking about dogs next week. We'll be talking about the North. So that's lovely. Until (laughs) then, from Thea and from me, goodbye.